Welcome to the Arab Spring, a history. Episode 24, The Gulf States. As we meander our way around the Middle East on our relentless march towards the Arab Spring, there are areas which have not received as much attention as others, and one of these is the Gulf States. We have managed to pass them by in the narrative thus far, an error which must now be rectified. So, we begin this particular story back where we began the whole narrative, the 19th century, and the collapsing Ottoman rule. As the Ottomans fell back from the edges of their empire, the British were not ones to let an opportunity be missed. They had established themselves in Aden, a port on the south of the Arabian Peninsula, which would eventually become part of Yemen, and began to form treaties with the small sheikdoms on the Persian Gulf, and generally began to view the Gulf as a British lake. This included their special relationship with the sheikdoms on the western side of the Gulf, and their dominance in southern Persia on the eastern side of the Gulf. A special relationship was signed with Bahrain in 1861, in which Bahrain essentially became a British vassal, but was protected from the territorial ambitions of the Ottomans and Persians. Indeed, the Turks were trying to re-establish their position in the region, and so had sent a fleet into the Gulf, which certainly annoyed the British. Little actually came of it, as the Turks were far more interested in the mainland than the sea, but the British did strengthen their ties with Bahrain. To the north was the Emirate of Kuwait. Kuwait became independent in the 18th century, and it was in a great location, at the head of the Persian Gulf. It was a Turkish vassal, but the British were interested in the port, and finally agreed to make Kuwait protectorate in 1899, thanks to the pleas of the Emir Mubarak the Great. These were little states, it must be noted. A few, Kuwait in particular, had good ports, but the region was not particularly important in global politics. Therefore, we'll jump forward into the 1930s. The British were still dominant in the area. Iraq would only gain full independence in 1932. What changed everything? Yes, you guessed it. Oil. Until the 1930s, no one really considered that there might be oil on the western side of the Persian Gulf. Persia was the only oil-producing state in the region, and the different rock formations on the far side of the water were enough evidence that there was no point in looking. But there was bitumen in Kuwait, and that was enough to convince some that maybe they could find a bit of oil. The British believed that there was no oil to be found, though the emirs of Kuwait and Bahrain wanted there to be an investigation. Finally, in 1931, Bahrain granted an oil concession to Standard Oil of California, which will become Chevron. This created the Bahrain Petroleum Company, or BAPCO, which was registered in Canada so that everyone could pretend that it was British. 
After only six months, Bapco found oil, which sparked King Ibn Saud to grant the oil concession we discussed way back in episode 8 in Saudi Arabia. The British had been stubborn with Kuwait as well, but finally relented. It was a lengthy bargaining process between Kuwait and two competitors, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which will eventually become BP, and the American Gulf Oil Company. Eventually, these two formed a 50-50 agreement to form the Kuwait Oil Company, the COK, which obtained a concession in 1934. Britain was fearful that concessions with the other Gulf states would follow events in Saudi Arabia and become solely American. Therefore, they agreed a joint venture based on a previous joint venture, the Iraq Petroleum Company. In this new Petroleum Concessions Limited, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company would own 23.75%, Royal Dutch Shell would own 23.75%, Standard Oil of New Jersey and Sony Vacuum, which would later become Mobil, would jointly own 23.75%. The Compagnie Française de Petroles, or CFP, which would eventually become Total, would own 23.75%, and finally, and there is no way I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kaluste Gulbekian, an Armenian businessman, would own 5%. Qatar granted a concession in 1935. The remaining states would prove harder. These small shakedoms, collectively known as the Trucial States, though they would become the United Arab Emirates, took a lot of convincing and threats before finally agreeing until only one state was left, Abu Dhabi. Sheikh Shakbut, the ruler of Abu Dhabi, was convinced that there was oil there, and those from the Petroleum Concessions Limited agreed, and Sheikh Shakbut pushed them hard, before finally coming to a deal in 1939. By this point, the Middle East was producing only 5% of the world's oil, but this would sharply rise. Europe was a mess following World War II, it wanted to recover and expand its economies, a push which would be fuelled by oil. The peace brought about by World War II allowed oil production to really get underway, and this really aided the Middle Eastern states themselves. You'll recall that previously, oil companies had only paid a fraction of their earnings to the states from which they received the concession, but this changed in 1950 in favour of a 50-50 splitting of the profit. So, to simply put it, state revenue exploded. Iraq earned £13.9 million in 1951, a figure which rose to £51.3 million in 1953. In Saudi Arabia, oil revenues were half a million dollars a year in the 1930s. This became $56 million by 1950 and $200 million by 1956. Kuwait went from £3 million a year in 1949 to £60 million by 1952. This is particularly impressive given the size of the various states. Saudi Arabia had a population of about 3 million, Iraq a population of about 5 million, and Iran a population of about 17 million. In contrast, in contrast Kuwait had a population of about 152,000. This was a vastly improving situation, 
but the states were still not fully in control of the revenues. The real powers in this game were big oil. In 1959, oil prices were cut twice by the oil companies, something caused by the vast amounts of cheaply produced oil from the Middle East, but this was done without consulting the states themselves. To say that they felt aggrieved would be an understatement. Their response was to create the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, which initially contained five states, Iran, Venezuela, Iraq, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. OPEC didn't have a huge initial effect, as you will have noticed from previous episodes on Iraq's problems with the Iraq Petroleum Company, but in time it would, and other states would gain a position similar to Kuwait. Kuwait was truly the world's first oil state. This was in theory at least, as technically it was still a British protectorate. The Kuwaitis wanted full independence, but it was not a very developed country. There were fears about its ability to govern itself and to defend itself, but eventually the British gave in and Kuwait became fully independent in 1961. Kuwait suffered an attack from Qasim in Iraq, which was a terrible idea on Qasim's part. The British stepped in, hoping to re-establish some national pride following the disaster at Suez, but this force was soon replaced by troops from the Arab League, who wanted to protect this new Arab state. Kuwait may have been wealthy, but it was vulnerable. They, therefore, decided that it would be unwise to choose sides in international politics. It would be a neutral in the Middle Eastern stage not taking a side in the battle between the conservative and radical states. It would also be a neutral in global politics, opening diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. Kuwait would be just friendly, and use its newfound wealth to help develop other Arab states. Independence would soon be coming to the other Gulf states, not that they were expecting it. The British pulled out of Aden in 1966, deciding instead to focus their presence in the Persian Gulf, but a financial crisis forced the British to pull out of the Gulf in 1971. Bahrain and Qatar, the two largest states, became fully independent, but this wasn't an option for the smaller sheikdoms. They were simply too small and too poor. This led to the creation of the United Arab Emirates. The largest of the cities, Abu Dhabi, would be the capital and its sheikh would be the president of the federation. By this point, the oil scene was changing. OPEC had expanded from its five members in 1959, gaining Qatar, Indonesia, Libya, the United Arab Emirates, Algeria, Nigeria, Ecuador and Gabon by 1971. Trouble in the region had caused an oil shortage in Europe. To solve this, they turned to Libya. Libya had been taken by the Italians during the collapse of the Ottoman Empire before World War I and had been the location for much of the North African campaign in World War II. Following the end of the war and the spread of decolonisation, Libya became an independent kingdom in 1951 under King Idris. Idris believed in peaceful coexistence, along lines similar to Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. The economy prospered as the oil fields were exploited and he maintained a close relationship with both Britain and the United States, a pro-Western view which was unpopular with pan-Arabists, particularly after the Suez Crisis in 1956. 
While he was out of the country receiving medical treatment in Turkey, a coup took place, and the monarchy was overthrown in 1969 to be replaced by Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi was an anti-Westerner, and so he dealt with smaller oil companies and negotiated a better deal for Libya. It was a small gain, but one which would have big consequences. Shortly after this, Saudi Arabia, Iran and Iraq negotiated a better oil deal, known as the Tehran Agreement in 1971, which saw a rise in rates. The Yom Kippur War of 1973 between the Arab states and Israel led to the Arab states boycotting any state which supported Israel, and oil prices rose. This event, the 1973 oil crisis, was exacerbated by the 1973 stock market crash. If you'll excuse me, we'll turn to global economics for just a moment. The post-World War II financial system, known as the Bretton Woods system, ended in 1971 with the Nixon shock, as the United States brought to an end the ability to directly convert dollars to gold. This had the effect of changing the global financial system, as US dollars became a standard reserve currency, as other states ditched gold too, and created the system of free-floating currency, which survives to this day. It was a political success, but it created a lot of instability, as currency's value could radically change very quickly, something which was partly responsible for the Asian financial crisis of the 1990s. But I digress. Back to the 1970s. As the US currency became more unstable, the world's economy took a huge hit. Between January 1973 and December 1974, the Dow Jones lost 45% of its value, but the effect was even worse in the United Kingdom. The FT30, the precursor to the FTSE 100, lost over 70% of its value. This ushered in a period of stagflation. With all this trouble, the Arab states took advantage of the situation and oil prices rose, quadrupling in 1974. This is what led to the situation we spoke of in the previous episode, where the Saudis invested heavily in improving the lives of their citizens, most of whom were living in poverty, but were struggling to spend all their money. Then, income rose from $2.7 billion in 1972 to almost $25 billion in 1975. Saudi Arabia became a crucial member of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and also gave aid to other countries, about 10% of GDP, a vast amount. In 1975, the king, Faisal, who had led the reforms, was assassinated, and practical control of the country was transferred to Fad, who would become king himself in 1982. Fad would rule Saudi Arabia until his death in 2005. This would be the golden era for OPEC countries. The West was quite alarmed at just how dependent it had become on cheap foreign oil, and had started using it less as oil prices rose, as well as developing non-OPEC reserves, such as Alaska and the North Sea. It looked likely that there would be a crash in oil prices, which would be disastrous for the Gulf states. So they cut back on production and maintained prices at much steadier levels, aside for brief blips, such as the one caused by the Iraq-Iran war, but we'll get to that. 
This was fine for small states such as Kuwait and Abu Dhabi, even for Libya, but it spelled trouble for states who, even with heightened oil revenues, still couldn't meet their expenditures, such as Iran. If you enjoy the show, remember to check out the website and our various social medias. You can also leave an iTunes review if you are so inclined. I'll see you in two weeks when we go have a look at what's been going on in Syria and Egypt.